So I take it your buddy doesn't work at night. What do you mean? Solar panels. Go crazy, folks. Just like MJ, we're back. I'm your host, Kyle Hill. My apologies for the delay, but right after we recorded this episode, we decided to sell our house and buy a newer one with the help of our friend from the podcast, Tony Long, and his associate, David Bizarra of Long Real Estate Team. We're finally settling into the house, and the to-do list is growing ever longer, but we're thrilled with a new place to hang our hat and call home. So there's your update for the Hill family. Now, today we have a long-anticipated episode with my pal and fellow Northlander, Andy Flattery of Simple Wealth Advisors. You may remember Andy from previous episodes where we talked about life insurance on episode four and what the hell is a financial planner on episode 10. Andy has become a Bitcoin enthusiast and my go-to guy for questions about Bitcoin. So we thought we should sit down and talk about Bitcoin and why it's superior to other cryptocurrencies. I grill Andy with my skepticism about Bitcoin. I do use the term lightly when I say grill uh, because really it's just an honest conversation and honest questions that I have about Bitcoin. I'm actually pretty intrigued with it, which is pretty hilarious because five or six years ago, I would have said you are dumb, um, to put it nicely, to buy Bitcoin. However, with the way everything has changed since that time with the absurd amount of money printing and seizure of property, it has me kind of warming up to the idea of Bitcoin. Before we dive right into the episode, I need to remind you this is for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as advice. Now ask yourself, what is money? I asked my boys, Thomas and Harrison, and here's what they had to say. All right, boys. So we just moved into a new house, and Mommy's working hard on the laundry room. And we're working on recording a podcast here about money. So tell me, Thomas, what is money? Um, money is paper. Money is paper? Mm-hmm. What kind of paper? It's not hard paper, it's soft. Oh, it's not hard paper, it's soft. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you could break it by putting water on it and bubbling it. Okay. What What do you think money is, Harry? Uh, coins and, like, paper that's, like, small, like this big. Oh, like that big? Yeah. Okay. And some are like this bit small. Oh, okay. What but What do you do with money? But these are pennies, and uh, I mean, these are pennies, and these are this money. Okay, so like dollar bills and coins. Yeah. What do you do with your money? Uh, pay stuff like cleats or anything like that. Thomas, what do you do with your money? Well, literally do whatever you want with it, but you got to have the most of it. I like it. I like it. The more money you have, the more you can do with it. Very good. Um, well, sounds good. I'm going to be talking about internet money 
Bitcoin. Okay. So uh, I I uh, recorded this with my buddy Andy. You met him before. So, but yeah, we'll get into that later. Last question for you boys, yeah. your baseball fans. What would your walk-up song be? Um, probably, I'm proud to be American. Proud to be an American by Lee Greenwald. Yeah, I don't hold it. What would your walk-up song be, Harrison? I don't hold it. What would your walk-up song be? Uh, uh, so this is the thing that I'm going to sing. Uh, I'm going to take my spilling on my own. I'm going to ride to the can no more. I'm going to take my horse to the town road. I'm going to ride to the can no more. I got the horses in the back. Got sack in the tag. All right, so... Okay, so Old Town Road, I gotcha. So, good stuff. All right, well, thanks for helping me out, boys. Insightful for a six and a four year old. I guess my indoctrinating them into loving their country has worked. <laughs> and just to correct myself, that was God Bless the USA by Lee Greenwood, not Greenwald. Um, you've heard me talk about my boys a lot, and uh, maybe we'll get them on future episodes so now without further delay here's my interview with andy flattery and andy congrats on your new baby girl vera is that a good slurp that's right yeah (laughs) no mug club slurp there but yeah awesome andy welcome back buddy long time no see hey kyle thanks for having me back on the podcast good to see you good to see you how have you been what have you been up to? Been great. Been great. Um, yeah, it's uh, baseball season. So we went to Twins Royals on Friday night uh, for the first time this year. It was great to be at the K and uh, getting my little boys out there to play some t-ball. So um, definitely excited about uh, uh, spring being in full bloom with little boys that like to play ball. Nice. Remind me how old are they? A three and one. I was going to say three. So it's just, you know, if I can get them to like run around the bases and try to hit home runs um, off the tee, that's, that's the goal for this year. Nice. Nice. Uh, Well, that's how you get them started. So three, we're getting pretty close on. uh, So uh, got a uh, six U coach pitch team. So my son started when he was three in the fall. So uh, um, I like to scout some talent. So (laughs) I'll be giving you a call. Uh, It's Leo, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Leo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're the the Rebels six U coach pitch team. Okay. So we play up uh, in KCA. We're supposed to have a game today, but I think we're going to get washed out. But uh, it's been fun though. I this is my first season head coaching. I've been helping coach for the past couple seasons, and we finally took the leap to start our own team. And I'm just like, what am I doing? But it's been a lot. Well, of fun. I mean, yeah. When when we saw it, was it your four year old that we saw playing? on the 4th of July last summer. Um, I mean, he looks, he looks like he's got the makings of something special. So <laughs> is that, is that the kid you're coaching? No, that's, um, that's my oldest. Tom. Oh, okay. So he's okay. six. I got you. Um, he plays seven U machine pitch. They had a game last night and 
let's just say I don't do losing well. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, are you one of those dads, Kyle? Well, I I keep it under wraps, but um, you know, uh, internally it just like kills me. Um, so it's been an up and down season. It's mm-hmm. like we can't put a full game together. Um, but we either start strong and finish weak, or start slow and finish strong, and it's just not enough. Um, yeah, so. Uh, it was kind of funny last night, though. The other team in uh, – were they the home team? I don't, I don't even remember. But uh, the last inning, they had a kid hit the ball, and it bounced off. So, at A.J. Wilson, the tops of their fence are lined with um, this yellow uh, plastic uh, uh, oh shoot, gutter stuff. Um, so, kids, you know, don't hop up on it and cut themselves, I guess. But – Ball hit off that, bounced back into play. Well, the umpire's like a teenager, right? And so I don't, I don't think he knew what to do. He looks over at the other team's coach, and he's, you know, saying circle the bases. And so the umpire calls a home run. Our coach goes out there. He's like, that's not a home run. That's not the rules. And everybody was up in arms about it. Well, leave it to my wife. She emailed the director while she was in the stands asking clarification on the rules. <laughs> sure enough, it was not a home run. So, I have never seen I've never seen a ball hit that thing on top of the fence and bounce back in. What is it? A ground rule double? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. So that's a good question. Um, Moot point now, but uh, going forward, yeah, I would assume ground rule double, but or, or it's still, just, in, still or in, play. Just in play, right? Yeah, yeah, still in play. So, but uh, yeah, it was a three run homer. Um, but yeah, no. So that's my oldest, Thomas. He plays six U. Um, or seven U, excuse me, seven U machine pitch. But uh, Harrison, he's my four year old. He's he started last fall when he was three playing six U coach pitch. And um, so our team uh, got our first win over the weekend, and we're five hundred. We're one, one, and three. Okay, <laughs> three ties, man. I, oh, so um, it's a different game. It sounds like. Oh gosh. So it's a 50 minute time limit and you're lucky if you get through the order twice, uh, but it's a lot of fun. I enjoy working with the kids. Um, parents help out. I mean, it takes a village to do this, but, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. You should definitely look into getting your little guy into it. So, um, but most of our kids are, you know, four to five range. So it's kind of a younger team. We've got a couple older kids that are probably going to have to move up, but, uh, but it's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, our first, we finally scored our first runs the game before last. But we had only lost one game. And then I thought we were going to win the game that we scored two runs. But then uh, we gave up two runs in the in the last inning. And we had two outs that we won't get into. I'm not going to throw any kids under the bus there. <laughs> Six and under. So no, it's yeah, it's a lot of fun. But yeah, we we scored nine runs in the last game. There you I go. Think. We finally got the bats going. This there is awesome. Go. Yeah, we won nine to four. So it was a lot of fun. We're looking forward to the game today. Yeah. But, is it? Uh, yeah, is it the dead ball era in seven and under right now? Is that what's going on? <laughs> they're, they're do- the, the league is doctoring the balls. Yeah, those rubber balls. They have some right. pop on them, some bounce. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, it's good. It's a lot of fun. So I was going to have Hilltop sponsor the team, but my wife didn't like the idea of the Hilltoppers. So we're the rebels. 
I think the so, Hilltopper sounds pretty cool. I think it's a pretty sweet logo, but yeah. she didn't think so. But uh, yeah, anywho. So yeah, what uh, what's what's going on? Um, we've got monkeypox going on. What is that? Um, I don't even know what that is. Is that a new pandemic? I, I can't. Keep I, track. I'm sure there's people. I'm sure there's people googling. Am I going to turn into a monkey if I get monkeypox? You know, like I, no. COVID honestly, I've never. Now? This is the first time I've actually heard about this. Is this a new I, thing that I should be worried you've about? Been living under a rock. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe. No. Um. Yeah. No. Honestly, like I, I don't follow a lot of the news, so um, I haven't heard of monkeypox yet. But I guess I'm going to have to start. You being gaslighted into worrying about this? Is that the new thing? Uh, uh, it depends on who you listen to, I guess. Um, no, it's, I guess, affected a few people, like a few dozen, maybe a few hundred people. I don't know. Um, yeah, so it's just crazy. It's like we went from COVID, now it's monkeypox. And uh, Do you remember that when COVID first, everybody was calling it the coronavirus, and so people were Googling, like, you get coronavirus from drinking Corona beer. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like their their beer sales took a hit. Yeah. No, yep. I don't know. So. Yep. Uh the world the world we were so much more innocent back then. <laughs> I don't know. Anyhow, so what are you guys doing this summer? How's the game by the way? Um I'm sure the Royals lost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I uh I grew up in Iowa. Um grew up uh, with Kirby Puckett being my hero, um, you know, the great Kirby Puckett yep. d- doing the sign of the cross in, in the batter's box. And then later it was like Tory Hunter, uh, Joe Maurer, Justin Morneau. Um, that was sort of the teams that I grew up with. And so um, as, as I'm alluding to here, it's it's sort of hard to get rid of that as a, as a fan. Um, yeah. So here I've lived in Kansas City for eight years. I've been the benefit of being a fair weather Royals fan when, when the team went to two World Series and won one. But I would say my heart is still uh, with the Minnesota Twins. So um, anytime the Twins are in town, I try to go to those series. And um, my wife is a nurse at KU, and she got invited to sit in the George Brett suite. And so nice. that was pretty fun. I had a chance to go and hang out and – uh, watch a beautiful game at the K and, uh, yeah, the twins swept the Royals. So, um, I haven't followed everything that's going on with the Royals this year, but it sounds like, uh, um, the offense has not been what they wanted to be. I noticed that wit is not having a great year so far. Yeah. And, uh, um, I don't think they're in last right now, but, um, yeah, it could be another Tigers. rough year for the Royals. Yeah. Tigers yeah. are bad too. Yeah. Yeah, Wit, Salvi, they've been having kind of slow starts, and then Mondi got hurt. I've never been a big, huge Mondi guy. I I don't know. He seems very injury prone. Okay. Um, I I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, these guys are all better than me, so you know we'll just leave it at that. But so, do you, you wear your Twins gear when you go to the games? I do. Yeah. Okay. yeah. How do you get treated? Right. I get some. I you know people in Kansas City are so nice, so I get like the stink eye, but but it's always like. <laughs> Oh, we're just kidding. Like we're we're glad to have you here, and you know nobody's that hardcore about it. Um, and uh, I haven't pushed the twins thing on my kids yet. They're not old enough, really, anyway. But yeah, if they want to support their local team, um, I'm I'm all about that. Like I like how Kansas City sort of embraces the Royals as if like they're 
you know, the local team. Whereas when I was growing up in Iowa, we didn't have that. It was more like, you know, you supported like your local high school or you supported like you supported like the Iowa State Cyclones or the Iowa Hawkeyes. That was yeah. sort of what people do in Kansas City with the Royals and the Chiefs. Um, and I guess sporting K State too. And uh that's cool. Yeah, if my kids want to do that, um I'm gonna be uh pretty laissez faire on that front. Yeah, okay. Iowa State, do they have a baseball program? Oh, man, this is a really sore subject in my family. I, I haven't told you about this yet. No. Okay, so so Iowa State had a baseball program, and they are now um, either the only team or, like, it's, there's only one or two teams in the Big 12 that does not have a baseball program. And so, huh. gosh, about 20 years ago right now, this was, like, one of those Title IX cuts where yeah. – um, they dropped the program because they couldn't pay for it. And uh, they added a couple women's programs. And um, it's really sad because Iowa actually is a pretty good baseball state. Um, they like per capita, they've put players in the majors. Um, maybe they punch above their weight class in that regard. Um, and Iowa's got a nice program. The University of Northern Iowa has had a, a decent program, but they, drop theirs too. Um, and so, yeah, my dad played ball there. In fact, my dad actually still has Iowa state baseball records, which is cool, nice. but, but it's also not cool because it's like, he's got them because there's nobody that can essentially beat them anymore. Like they're sort of set in stone. Um, Frozen in time. Yeah. And it's, it's the reason my brother Joey went to play at Kansas state and my brother Tim went to play at Northern Iowa because, you know, Cyclones didn't have a team. So Huh. Um, yeah, sort of a sore spot in our family. I I didn't realize that. I, I looking at K State's uh, schedule, I never saw Iowa State on there, so I was like, kind of wondering. But that's kind of how. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm like, dude, I'm like, I'm getting so. I mean, we're going to talk about how I'm red pilled on or orange pilled on Bitcoin, but I'm sort of red pilled on just college sports in general. Um, it sort of drives me nuts about how it's just become like this commercial institution and. Um, you know, every decision that Jamie Pollard at Iowa state makes is about money. And, um, I know that makes me sound like a lib by saying it that way, but, um, it is a problem. Like if we don't have baseball at the school that I went to and that I love, and it's all just about like, you know, putting a good football product on the field because that's what brings in revenue. Um, it's, there's a lot of problems with that. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a sore spot for sure. Student athletes. <laughs> there is yeah what student there aren't any is that a thing anymore uh what well, the uh nil what is it the name name likeness i don't know right where they can now get yeah paid. i don't i don't follow all of it closely enough to have a really yeah. like nuanced opinion on what's all going on with that thing but um i'm just saying as like a fan of my alma mater um, it's been disappointing so so I'm curious about that, actually. Um, and we'll get to Bitcoin here in a second. But so that's what I never, the whole paying college athletes, it's like, well, how do you how do you do that? Because the football player compared to, you know, the track athlete, because you you did track, right? At Iowa right. State. Yeah, yeah. And so So what is, how do you compensate them? Equally, equitably, you know, what, what does that metric look like? Um, the baseball player versus, you know, the, it, it's just, 
it's a challenge um, to figure out the right formula for that, right? Right. I mean, the economics of it mean that really a school, I mean, if you're, if you're a free market, really the schools would just have football. Or if you're Kansas, you have basketball. Yeah. Right. And then that essentially subsidizes whatever other programs you want to have, which I don't even know how you come up with it. You're not going to have baseball because that's not going to bring in money. You, you have to have some women's sports because, you know, you want to, you want to play that game and like, look like you're giving equal opportunity to everyone. But, but yeah, how do you balance that? How do you have the appropriate allocation to the right amount of sports and how does each school decide? It's, it's, uh, it's hard to do when essentially every decision resolve revolves around how do we get a, a big football program that brings a lot of money for the university? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But question for a later time. Um, are you a fan of uh, Little Big League? Oh man, is that okay? So is that the one with the kid that coached the Twins? Yeah, man, I haven't seen that in years. But of course, yeah, when I was a kid, um, yeah, I remember that movie. That was a good one. That was like the golden age of baseball movies. Yeah, you know, you had like uh, Little Big League, The Sandlot, um, what was it, Rookie of the Year, Rookie of the Year. Yeah, it's a yeah. great era. So. I think I talked about this on prior podcast. So we went up to Minnesota back in, it was a weekend of nine 11. We went up for the twins Royals series. Yeah. Right. And beautiful stadium up there. We went to the Friday night game. We got on TV. We were out in left field, um, on the foul line. And yeah, I think you told me about this. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but then Saturday morning, so we were staying across the street at the, uh, the Lowe's hotel, um, on the other side of the target center. And so we just walked over to the stadium, the base target field. And we took the tour of the stadium Saturday morning and they were showing us, um, oh, that area on the middle deck, the indoor area, um, that has like the bar in it and everything, um, on the first base side. And she was talking about all the players' numbers that are retired. And me being a smartass, I said, so where, where's Billy Haywood's number? Yeah. And uh, is, is his number retired? <laughs> and nobody got the joke. It's yeah. yeah. My, my typical dad joke that nobody gets. Well, I mean, the, the sad thing about that is um, – that's probably a lot of people's connection with the Minnesota twins anyway. <laughs> right. Cause, cause for, for most people, like just Kirby Puckett was not that big of a deal. I mean, they know who Joe Maurer is, but um, I mean, the twins sort of had, have had sort of a, as pitiful of a playoff run in the last few decades as probably, well, it's been worse than the Royals for sure at this point. Um, and so the franchise has really not been exceptional. Um they won the World Series in 91, and uh, they had a nice sort of run for a decade under Ron Gardenhire, but even then, um, we have not won many playoff games. So, yeah, yeah um, it has not been uh, – um, it doesn't surprise me that people like you um, – and, and you know more about baseball than most people, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that just think of um, Billy Haywood as being their connection to the Twins. I put on a good front. Right. <laughs> um so, so last thing. So, do you know that that song, um, "Beers on Me" by Dirks Bentley? No. 
because you kind of you kind of look like Dirk Bentley. Oh, okay. You, you have to look a little bit. I'm gonna look him up. Is he is he a good looking guy? He is. He is. Um, country country music. Yeah, my wife, my Ginevra is more of the country the country music person. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell her you said that. <laughs> so so he has this song. I'm I'm getting somewhere with this, and maybe this is a KC fan thing, but um, he has this this song. The music video is called "Beers on Me," and they go around town. I think it's in Nashville. They go around town. They have their private labeled beer that they're just handing out around town because the beer's on yeah. him, right? And so I have this idea of a a event a client family and friends event appreciation event um i've got my buddies at rochester where they can do private label you know you could do like a hilltop beer oh cool or a kc fan beer what's rochester uh, is that a microbrewery uh it's where we had coffee that one time that's Um, right yeah that's right you told me you know the yeah so it's Mm -hmm. a a roastery brewery slash event space and i was like this would be cool to do an event and do like private labeled beer and give that out to, so I don't know. We might have to chew on that a little bit, kick the tires on it, but uh, you can be Dirk Bentley and I'll, uh, I'll be the other guy. Yeah. Um, so awesome. nice. I'm going to, I'm going to watch that video. I just <laughs> Check it out. Check it out. So, um, okay. Well, uh, so Bitcoin, um, I told you uh, the title for this could be Bitcoin. Those are just trash. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think this is, you know, you're kind of the Bitcoin expert. When I have questions about Bitcoin, you know, first person I think about is you. Uh, you talk about it a lot on your podcast. And um, I, I was very skeptical um, uh, when, several years ago. I probably need to apologize to some folks. Um, <laughs> back then for berating them, um, not really berating them, but, uh, for, for saying it was stupid to, to invest in Bitcoin. Um, but, uh, since, since then, um, and everything that's kind of transpired, I've, I'm still, I still have my skepticism, but, uh, I've been coming, I become increasingly interested and intrigued by Bitcoin. Um, so. So yeah, um, cool. For anybody that I offended previously, sorry. Uh, you know what though? Um, this is sort of like everyone's story. So everyone that com- comes around to Bitcoin has some version of that story, and I was in the same place um, for a lot of years. Um, all I was able to see in the Bitcoin space was just like the speculation and the sort of insane. Um, like manias of the boom busts that we've had many times over Bitcoin. And that was like the only thing that I could see. I, I, I never knew that there was like more to it. And so, um, you know, in my hubris, I never looked into it until, you know, more recent last couple of years. So, um, and that's, that's true of everyone. So um, yeah, it's uh, I think, especially people in sort of traditional finance, trad fives, like you and I, we are more amenable to being skeptical of Bitcoin because we have seen this be like a grassroots movement. You know, it's, it's, it hasn't come from the top. It hasn't come from, 
you know, smart financial people, it, it started with some cypherpunks and then it started and then it became like a libertarian thing and then it became a Silicon Valley thing. And so like these communities have slowly adopted it over the years. And now it's really becoming a lot more mainstream. Um, and so people like, you know, me are getting into it. But, um, uh, so, but yeah, I think that's I think I think that grassroots part to it makes tra traditional finance people skeptical because they like sort of turn up their nose that like something interesting in finance could come from retail. Whereas like we're told that if retail's into it, it surely must be a bubble. So yeah, we'll, we'll, let's dive into that. But first, I guess just approaching this as kind of the novice to Bitcoin or beginner's guide to Bitcoin. Um, and then just kind of the, the questions that I have, you know, uh, just honest questions that I have. Um, and maybe there's no answers for those, but but just tell us like kind of the basics to Bitcoin, how it was started, why and who started it and those sorts of things. Sure. Um, okay. Well, and let me just say that I, I actually I'm not an expert on this topic. What, what makes me unique is that I am a, a financial planner that has is sort of come around to the idea that Bitcoin is um, – is becoming the world's best money and it's sort of the ideal version of 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 money that we that we would want and um that's what makes me unique is like i'm one of the only financial planners in this space that's saying that um but i'm i'm learning like everyone um i'm i know more than most but not as much as like uh you know a real expert in the space so i'll just sort of share with you what it is that i'm learning um you know bitcoin was really it can't, it was born out of the financial crisis of 2008 so um i don't think it's an accident that um you know bitcoin essentially came out of an era where essentially banks were bailed out mm -hmm. and that was sort of the first version of what we see all the time now where um you know, especially here in the U.S., the the government essentially used uh, printed fiat dollars to essentially bail out um, U.S. corporations. And so, what was the the famous George Bush line? We have to, um, oh, what is it? It was like we have to uh, stop the free market system in order to save the free market system. I I, I butchered okay. that, but. Um, but yeah, I don't think it was an accident that essentially Satoshi Nakamoto re released the white paper in uh, 2009 um, because, it, 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 you know, at that point, it was very clear that, you know, at least for some people, that there was something broken in the monetary system. If essentially this was the new, going to be the new thing where every time we have a downturn, we're just going to bail everybody out and the, uh, the government's going to print money and it's all going to be you know, resolved at that point. Um, if that's the case, then the money's broken our, and our money is essentially, um, there are no rules to our, our fiat currency if it's just grounded and, you know, the government's going to print more whenever they want to do something like that. And so, um, yeah, who was Satoshi Nakamoto? We don't know. Um, it's uh, probably a pseudonym. He was part of the cypherpunk community. So there's sort of this uh, uh, cypherpunk um, community dating back to like the 1970s of cryptographers is the name of the uh, terminology. Um, and these are people that were working on the project of creating digital money for many decades. So in fact, Bitcoin was not the first version of digital money or not the first attempt at it. It was just essentially the first version that actually caught on. Um, 
but there had been attempts to do something like Bitcoin um, dating back to like the 90s. Um, so like there was a cryptographer named Nick Zabo um, who created a version of digital money. It, it was either the late 90s or the early 2000s. I can't remember the exact year, but Nick Zabo is a really interesting guy, Kyle, that you would like. Um, his, his family was uh, uh, from communist Hungary. And okay. uh, so he's very skeptical of like communism and big government. And he was a Trump supporter and he really um, contributed a lot to the groundwork, which eventually became Bitcoin. So uh, what Satoshi Nakamoto did was he essentially collected a lot of the uh, cypherpunk material from prior decades and sort of put it all together and he had a couple of his own innovations that made it all work, which were genius. Um, but it didn't come out of thin air. Like he used the work of people like Nick Zabo and Ralph Merkel um, was a, a cypherpunk who invented this thing called the Merkel tree, I think in like the 1970s. I think it's that old. And the Merkel tree is actually a, a blockchain. So when you hear people talk about something like a blockchain, um, that's mm -hmm. been around for decades. And now you hear people talk about things like blockchain technology. Well, um, that's that technology is decades old. And uh, Satoshi Nakamoto was part of this community. Um, he created this white paper that went out to the cypherpunk email list. And it took a little bit of time, but it eventually caught on and somehow started gaining a, a price after like a, a many months of sort of being out there. Um, he and then probably the most pivotal thing about what makes Bitcoin so unique today and the reason why Bitcoin cannot be replicated is that, at least I think it cannot be replicated, is that Satoshi Nakamoto disappeared. And so, um, you know, unlike maybe another, you know, scenario that we could ha envision where the, the founder of Bitcoin is still around and like making decisions and telling us what should be happening to the protocol he disappeared and essentially left Bitcoin in the hands of like the community, the developer community, the people that run the nodes, which we can talk about. Um, and, uh, and that's pretty interesting because now you've got this like decentralized network of decision makers that um, is not dependent on any one authority, any one company. And it's really what makes Bitcoin unique and, and more of like a decentralized commodity as opposed to like a company or um you know, some, some other sort of altcoin, which, which, of which there are many. And, um, so that's sort of the basics on how it happened. So a couple things about Satoshi. So, uh, so is he a real person or is it just a group of people? Um, I've heard, you know, it's just a couple of, uh, what Japanese Asian companies put together, right? Uh, Samsung, Toshiba, maybe I'm wrong on that, but, um, so you don't know if he's like an actual real person. And then, so why remain anonymous? Yeah, I think, I mean, good question. Um, and nobody knows. Part of the ethos of Bitcoin is that who cares? Like um, it's sort of frowned upon in the Bitcoin community to like really try to um, figure out who it, who it was um, because it's sort of like, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto is so, sort of seen as like an archetype. It's like, if he existed, um, the fact that he went away either shows that he's like a really virtuous guy who was yeah. able to 
to not like enrich his own pockets or he, or, or what's probably likely is he, he's deceased. Like he died and by accident of history, like he sort of left us with this thing, um, which didn't need to happen the way that it did. But, but yeah, I mean, you can read through like his old emails and his old writings that he had not only in the white paper, but like in message boards. And it does seem like he's like a human being. Like people have speculated that he maybe lived in Europe for a while because some of his English used like uh, European, you know, style phrasings and things like that. Okay. Um, there, there are some interesting articles out there of people who speculate that it could be certain cypherpunks. Uh, one in particular of a cypherpunk that died like a decade ago at, at around the time that Satoshi disappeared, which is sort of interesting. So there are some, um, there are some speculations out there, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like I, your guess is as good as mine. Um, it's sort of a fascinating topic um i sort of think it probably was a person but it could certainly be a group of people too and you know the fact is it doesn't really matter because um bitcoin exists and it exists without satoshi nakamoto and one thing i heard recently on a podcast i was listening to about bitcoin is um if people knew who satoshi really was he'd be at risk um yeah and so i thought that was that was kind of fascinating so yeah, I mean, that's part of the whole cypherpunk ethos is like having, um, you know, some like controlling your internet privacy. So that's, you know, beyond Bitcoin, like a lot of people that are like adjacent to Bitcoin are sort of obsessed with that idea. So it is not uncommon for like these sort of cypherpunk type of individuals or now Bitcoiners to have a pseudonym online. So like if you get on Bitcoin Twitter, for example, the first time you do it, it's going to blow your mind because there's all these like um, pseudonyms, these people that are just like meme accounts that have a lot of um, have a lot of uh, pull and like they're probably really smart people, but they're just going by like some sort of pseudonym. And that's kind of common in Bitcoin because there's a lot of these people that are like privacy minded. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, goes all the way back to Satoshi Nakamoto and probably prior to him. So... So thanks for giving kind of the history and, and that sort of thing. So kind of feeds into the supply of Bitcoin. How many Bitcoin are there? How many are in circulation? And um, my understanding, there's having events. There's one coming up soon where more are going to be released. So maybe talk right. about that a little bit on how that works. Okay. So there's 21 million and, and most people have probably heard that, um, that there's I should say there there will ultimately be 21 million Bitcoin when the full supply has essentially been released. Um, as of right now, it's, I don't know the exact number, but it's over 90% of all Bitcoin supply that will ever be released has already been essentially um, mined and released out, out into the world. And so, you know, the, the, the vast majority of Bitcoin that will ever exist already exists out in the market today. Um, and I mean, we could talk about why that's so important, but the 21 million thing is one of the more, most crucial aspects of why Bitcoin is important and why it's so different than any other money that exists today. Um, but yeah, so it's over 90% that's out there today. And the, the ultimate, um, or the, the final Bitcoin that will ever be mined is going to be like in 2042 or something like that. So okay. by that point there, 
the all the Bitcoin that will ever exist will have been mined and in circulation. Um, and so you mentioned the having events. Um, there's an inflation rate on Bitcoin, and so um, Bitcoin actually is an inflationary currency. But what makes it so interesting is that it's like around two percent inflation rate right now. And so when you hear about things like Bitcoin mining essentially that's the process for releasing new coins out into the market and the uh the stock to flow or the amount of new stock or new bitcoins that are being produced as a proportion of the the total flow or that the total um amount of bitcoin that's out there is like around two percent right now um here in 2022 and so that number um that halves every four years and so um, the next time there's a halving event, that number is going to cut in half. And so the inflation rate is actually going to get even lower. And so, um, when you hear people talk about how like fiat inflation is getting out of control, um, mm -hmm. Bitcoin is like the opposite thing where not only is the inflation rate already low, but it's only going to get lower over time to the point where there's going to be essentially no inflation, um, by the time all the coins are mined. And so it's, uh, it's a pretty sort of radical way to build a monetary system in that, in that regard. Okay. And, and so the mining is different from having events. Do the, do the having events keep going? Right. Yeah. So, th so the having events essentially happen for as long as new coins are going to, are going to be mined. And so what the having event, what the having events are is um, there's this thing in Bitcoin mining called the block reward. And so Bitcoin mining, it's not exactly mining, but that's the terminology that people know and use because they're sort of familiar with gold mining, which mm -hmm. is like the closest, maybe the closest corollary that we have here. But essentially what these Bitcoin miners do is they run these, these, these computers um, that essentially secure the network and create what's called new blocks. And, um, and as a reward for doing that is for, for essentially running these computers, for securing the network, um, creating new blocks on the Bitcoin blockchain, um, Bitcoin miners receive what's called a block reward. And so the block reward is essentially the amount of new Bitcoins that you get for mining a new block. And that's going to cut in half every four years. And so, um, you know, by the, by the time there's the next halving event, the amount of reward that you get will be um, half of what it was um, at, the, at the prior four-year cycle. And so... That's sort of what the having event means. Uh, so that's why it's significant. And, and just as like a, as an owner of Bitcoin, or like if you're if you want to think of yourself as an investor, a lot of times these having events have coincided with like big price run-ups because people recognize that when the inflation rate essentially gets cut in half, um, Bitcoin becomes more scarce, and so that does tend to coincide with like a price run-up. And so some people try to trade these four-year cycles as being like part of the boom bust cycle. That's not really my recommendation. I'm like buy and hold and hodl, if you will. Um, but if you're like a, a trader, you could try to play that game. Okay. Okay. So blockchain, you mentioned that. Talk about that. I know, um, you know, the big thing is, well, the general ledger gets talked about a lot. And so I think it's like, right. what does that mean? Um, you know, Talk about blockchain and the general ledger. Where do you go see the general ledger? Like, it's just, you know, you hear, you just have to look at the general ledger um, for proof of work, those sorts of things. How do you yeah. read it? 
Okay. So, so my mom's an accountant and my dad's a banker. And so when I'm trying to explain to somebody like, Hey, what, what Bitcoin is I'll, I mean, there's a lot of ways to answer that question and I'm not going to do this perfectly, but usually I'll start with something like Bitcoin is a decentralized ledger that cannot be corrupted, um, by anyone. It's sort of like, um, you know, it's like uh, Jurassic park where you had the fly in the Amber, um, mm. When, when a transaction happens on the, on the Bitcoin blockchain, which, you know, when you think, blo- when you hear blockchain, just think decentralized ledger, um, it's, it's now a fly in the amber and it's essentially impossible for anyone to reverse that. And so what's so new and interesting about, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain or, you know, think the Bitcoin ledger is like you and I could go back and we could literally audit every transaction that's ever happened on this ledger uh, since the very beginning, since 2009, which is um, uh, mind blowing when you think about, you know, auditing something like the U S dollar. Nobody has any idea how many dollars are out there, um, how they're created, uh, the the various ways that they're created, um, how many, how, how transactions happen. Whereas with the Bitcoin blockchain, it's, it's essentially the most honest monetary system that's ever been created because you because you and I could go back and we could audit every transaction that's ever happened. And so and so if you if you have a copy of the ledger and uh, like I have a copy of Bitcoin Core on my computer where I've I've downloaded the entire ledger, um, you now essentially are a central banker that uh, can audit every transaction for yourself and um, can view you know, the ledger on an ongoing basis. And so um, that's sort of a beautiful thing about it. And so if you think about, you know, if you're worried about Bitcoin as being like, um, I don't understand how it's magic internet money. That sounds crazy. Now I think magic internet money sounds kind of cool, but if you just think about it as a decentralized ledger, um, like in accounting terms, maybe it makes it a little bit more understandable. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the ledger is kind of like, your checkbook register, right? Right, exactly. Um, yeah, it's 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 your checkbook register, and it's everyone's checkbook register that has ever transacted on the network. And so, um, yeah, I mean, dating back all the way to two thousand nine, you can find the full the full audit of like the entire checkbook register for the whole network. But it's it's in pen. It's written in pen, not pencil, so it can't be erased, right? And then once it's done, it's laminated. So you can't go back and alter, right? Yeah, I, I'm. Right. I'm just trying to like, you know, wrap wrap my head around that. Yeah, and like ledger technology um, has been like ledgers have been around forever. You know, ledgers are like the very first form of accounting. You know, dating back to like you know before Christ, uh, Old Testament era, we had ledgers where people would keep track of their goats and you know keep track of their oxen and things like that. Um. In the Middle Ages, you know, uh, uh, was it the was it the Florentines um, that created double entry or d- double entry accounting, right? So that was like another innovation in ledgers. Um, where now you have double entry accounting, and this is just an an, an additional invention on top of uh, ledger technology. So, you know, in that regard, you know, we're not talking about something that uh, just came kind of came out of thin air. Like this is t- in, in a way, technology that's been around for millennia. So what got you interested in Bitcoin? Okay. Um, so 
Um, like a lot of people, I've been sort of following Bitcoin forever, um, just as like a you know someone on the sidelines. I remember buddies from high school, my brothers, uh, that were like sort of goofing around with it, you know, a decade ago. And uh, my brother, I think my brother Neil was one of those people that like lost his private, you know, he lost his password, right? So there's Bitcoin that he essentially donated to the supply that makes everyone's Bitcoin worth more because now essentially you're sort of donating it to the community. Um, but I, uh, I've always had sort of like a affinity for free markets and um, like an affinity for like the Austrian school of economics. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I remember years ago listening to like the Tom Woods show where he'd be talking about Bitcoin. Um, and I always thought of it, you know, years ago, like eight to 10 years ago is like merely a means of doing like transactions. Like I feel, I feel like that was sort of how it was sold to a lot of like free market minded people initially where it's like, oh, now you can do transactions that like people can't monitor and you know, it's like outside of the KYC system and the, like that sort of thing. And it, it's sort of like, I was like, oh, I was like, it was more of a curiosity to me, but it never really struck me as something like super important, right? Um, when it was just sort of seen as like, oh, it's a way to do your transactions that's more private and, you know, outside of the existing financial system. Um, and so that was my, and I was looking at my emails, like I had an email with some buddies in 2014, after the mountain gox explosion thinking yeah. about getting into it but of course i never did and then when the 2017 run-up happened um i remember like a lot of financial advisors seeing clients sort of speculate on it and i sort of turned up my nose at that idea because you know like a lot of financial advisors were taught to be sort of weary of you know retail clients speculating on things and you know, there's a lot of value in that, of course, but, um, you know, me sort of being a financial advisor, like that's sort of one of the things that kept me out of it. Um, at the same time, this debate about should Bitcoin be a means of like, uh, paying for your coffee at Starbucks or should it be more of like digital gold store value? Um, that debate was happening in the Bitcoin network. So that's where you had like, what uh, the altcoin wars or the the bcash wars happening like in the libertarian free market community where things like bitcoin cash were created as like forks of bitcoin and i remember hearing you know a lot of like my free market people saying like well bitcoin cash is the new the new thing because you, it's easier to, to use that to pay with your coffee and that just confused me like i didn't understand why like bitcoin was splitting um and so that was 2017. So it wasn't until a couple of years later, uh, all the way to like 2020, where um, I started to hear more about like the digital gold narrative. And so here it became more of like Bitcoin's a store of value, um, Bitcoin's digital gold. And that sort of piqued my curiosity more so than like uh, Bitcoin as a means of exchange, because I was sort of familiar with the idea of you know, being a gold bug, I, I'm not myself a gold bug, but I like at least have sympathy for some of those arguments of gold being like a store of value that's been around for thousands of years that, you know, has sort of always existed. And I, I didn't really hear that until like 2020. And so when the money printing went nuts in 2020 and like we started receiving stimulus checks, you know, deposited into my own personal bank account, like money that we didn't need. 
And I, I saw the government like shutting down the economy and thinking that they could just tell people not to go to work, but print money for everyone. Like that sort of broke my brain, Kyle. Yeah. And um, that was where I was like, okay, I'm going to take a look at gold. I'm going to take a look at Bitcoin because I'm sort of looking for some of these monetary goods that essentially can't be corrupted and uh, can't be printed into infinity. So um, yeah, that's where I found uh, some of the material about Bitcoin being gold as a uh, digital gold. And um, that is sort of my primary interest in Bitcoin. It's like essentially money that you could actually save and you could think of as like a store of value in the same way that people save gold in their safe. And so, um, yeah, I've read, read a bunch of things, started listening to podcasts, and that's sort of where my come to Jesus happened. Okay. So uh, uh, digital gold, is that kind of a derogatory term to Bitcoiners? Or is uh, it's, I think a lot, I, I think a lot of Bitcoiners would say it's too simplistic. Like it's more, <laughs> it's certainly more than just digital gold. Um, but I think it is a good meme to like, at least get started because everyone understands the idea of like, you know, gold coins, every, you know, people still like to hold gold. Everyone knows that crazy uncle that has gold in his safe at home. Um, and so even today, people like to hold gold as a store of value. The idea of digital gold is is interesting, too, because it's like, um, you know, in the same way that gold is hard, it's hard to create new gold. Well, it's very hard to create new Bitcoin. So you could call, call it a hard money in that regard. Mm -hmm. And making it digital gold is super interesting because now you can essentially um, – transact with anyone around the world. You could ship your store of value with a click of a button. Um, in fact, you could even have what's called a brain wallet where you could literally memorize your private key and hold your entire net worth in your head by memorizing your, your, your private key. And so in that regard, digital gold is has a lot of advantages that actual gold doesn't have. So a lot to unpack there, um, but I think this is a good way good segue into kind of the questions I have about it. And kind of the first one is you already kind of alluded to this a little bit, but the, what I originally asked folks is, well, do you view it as a currency or an investment? Right. I mean, this is the problem with it is that it's hard to put it in a box. And the reality is that there are people in the world today that are literally using Bitcoin as their native currency. So uh, there are services out there that allow you to use Bitcoin like it's your checking in your savings account. Um, there are services out there that allow you to literally pay your bills with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, here uh, in Kansas City, a few weeks back, we had the Bitcoin block party where yeah. I was selling I was selling some swag and people were paying me in Bitcoin using you know apps on our phone. But admittedly, um, the the vast majority of people are not viewing it as as uh, money in, in the truest sense yet, or like a currency that's meant as a medium of exchange. But uh, you know, Mises talks about how there are many properties to money. Um, you know, so money is a medium of exchange. It's uh, it's a store of value. It's a unit of account. There's all these various things that 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 consists of money and. Most people today, when they think of what the purpose of Bitcoin is, they're using it as a store of value. Um, and so, you know, the vast majority of people coming into it, they're either trading it or 
you know, doing what I recommend and they're, they're just buying it and they're holding it. Yeah. Um, so you can think about that as an investment and that's probably how most people think about it. They're thinking about, you know, holding Bitcoin in the same way that they'll hold like their S and P 500 index fund. But really, um, the sort of next level thinking about Bitcoin after thinking about it as an investment, which I think is totally fair, by the way, if you think about it as an investment, um, but if it's actually money, then the act of like holding it is is actually sort of also like saving. Um, well, that's that's going to kind of sound insane to some people because it's like, you know, this is not saving. It's so speculative. It's so volatile. It's not like saving at all. But but if you just like the, the definition of holding money is literally saving. And so right. um, now, obviously, you don't want to if you're saving for um, a new car that you want to buy in a few weeks, um, don't put it in Bitcoin. That would be stupid. Um, but if you think about saving in the same way that like maybe our our great grandparents thought about it, like my grandmother, when she died, there was like cash under the mattress. Yeah. Um, or like even like our great great grandparents that would have walked around with their life savings like in gold and silver coins. Um, savings used to be something that people would do like for like their very long term savings. Um, you know, you would save up to buy a house before mortgages. People literally would work for a few years and they would save their gold or their gold denominated money to buy a house. Um, and so that's the sort of saving that you could think of as like hodling Bitcoin. It's like, you know, you, you put your long-term savings in something like this. Um, and so that's sort of how I think about it. Yeah. Well, and so kind of where I go with that question is, well, if you view it as a currency, it's too volatile for our standards, right? Um, right. However, if you look at other countries with a less stable government and currency, it's not as volatile. Um compared to some other countries. Uh, I think what, El Salvador just made it, it their official currency or something like that. Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. So think about it this way. So so the US dollar, um, and, and like I, I own US dollars, I, I own dirt, dirty fiat. Um, we still like, the, <laughs> we still live in a world where dollars, the dollar is king. Um, it's the global reserve currency. It's short term stable but it depreciates over the long run. Okay. Whereas Bitcoin is short-term volatile, but it appreciates over the long run. And it's, it's actually engineered for that to be the case where with the dollar, since it's now unpegged from, you know, the gold or any sort of peg at all, essentially the powers that be are incentivized to just create new dollars into infinity. And there's really not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, honest things holding back uh, are essentially our overlords from creating new dollars. Whereas Bitcoin is essentially um, engineered to uh, increase a, an infinity into infinity against the dollar because there's only so much Bitcoin that can be created. And it's in the rules, essentially. Whereas with the dollar, there aren't any rules right now. Um, and so the biggest threat to, I think the biggest threat to Bitcoin is if the US dollar were to ever actually get its act together and sort of go back to having a peg to reality, whether that be a gold standard or something like that, where we can sort of rein in the amount of money printing that can happen. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think yeah. there's too many incentives in place for, um, for the dollar to sort of keep going with this money printing phenomenon. And it would be, it would be so painful 
to go to like an honest money standard. I don't think that that would, would ever happen, but I do think that would be the biggest risk to Bitcoin is if something like that were to happen. Yeah. Well, it's a losing proposition to say, hey, we're going to reduce spending. Uh, exactly. And, yeah. and so, yeah, no, I'm definitely. Or, or we're going to maintain the current level of spending, but we're going to keep an honest money standard and just raise your taxes. Like that's not going to happen e yeah. either. Um, so it's, so uh, society does not value responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. want free shit. <laughs> right. Right. A quote unquote free stuff. Yeah, I mean, when's the last time a politician won an election on um, on cutting the budget or, um, you know, like starting to rein in some of the massive spending that we have? It's it's essentially a po impossible to get to get elected. I mean, there are a few random people out there that like the Thomas Masseys of the world that yeah. are pretty good on this stuff. But like that's a <laughs> that's a minority of, of Congress um, that's even, you know, considering these sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, representative from Kentucky. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. Um, but so, so then the currency aspect. So then if you go over to the investment aspect of it, it's my, my question has always been is how do you value it? Um, it doesn't produce anything. Like if I invest in a business, right. If I invest in stock, I'm purchasing into a business that produces something and that's cash. It produces a profit right. cash flow. Um, assuming that we purchase a good company. Um, so, so that's kind of the downside. I can't wrap my mind around how do you value it? I'm not a gold guy. And so, um, but I, I think you, you kind of have to liken it to, well, how do you value gold? Well, yeah, you just said it. And my background's in the stock market too. So um, I had the same issues that that you're talking about right now where i i would say okay great well i understand why bitcoin's interesting i understand why it's important but i don't understand you know it, it's too simplistic to say it's just going to go up forever against the dollar like i i need more i need more than that <laughs> so yeah. like I, I understand that because like yeah if, if you're from like the warren buffett school of like value investing which you know a lot of financial advisors like that sort of thing and i, I do too um you're sort of used to this idea that you do fundamental analysis and you figure out what the company's um, spewing out in cash flow and you and you sort of value the company based on that. And so this is a totally different thing because we're not valuing some sort of company that's spewing out dividends um, at all. Like it's not a Warren Buffett thing at, in any sense. So it's more like you, yeah, you mentioned gold or you could think about like something like, you know, precious art, like artwork where um, these things have value. Like everyone agrees that um, the Mona Lisa has value and, uh, but, you know, it, but uh, it's hard to understand how to value these things. But, you know, in the Austrian school of economics, there's this idea that like of subjective value where, you know, really the value that we attribute to something is essentially what the, the market decides. And, you know, the Mona Lisa has value because we decide that it does. And it's hard to like mm -hmm. really figure out what the cash flows of the Mona Lisa are and like find out what sort of some sort of intrinsic fundamental analysis value it is. We just have decided that it's extremely valuable. And so um, the, that was a long way of me of saying that it's totally different than like stock investing. Yeah. So w what I discovered, which really helped me out a lot was that there are people that are looking at the fundamentals of Bitcoin um, and 
the best analysis that I've seen are, uh, I recommend an article called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by Vijay Boyapati. Have you seen this one yet, Kyle? Uh, is that the one you sent me? No, probably the, the ESG article. Yeah. Yeah. It's a medium article, which you can read in 20 minutes. And so it's a really good start. But essentially what he does is what a lot of people are doing is he, he, he essentially tries to carve out a percentage of global assets. So if you, if you added up everything, so like the amount of global assets that we have in fiat currencies, the amount of assets that we have in gold, the amount of assets that we have in things like uh, bonds and the stock market and real estate, there's over $300 trillion in global assets. And so, you know, the best analysis that I've seen that are really helpful for me is the ones that try to figure out, okay, if we actually had good money that could scale and, um, you know, scale meaning like it could grow beyond uh, the piddly, you know, $700 billion or whatever it is today in Bitcoin, like it, it could actually grow to be to be bigger of that and it has the infrastructure to do that. What percentage of that $300 trillion could that potentially be? And so you could think about it. Well, if it's if it's 1% of that 300 trillion, well, that's, that's $3 trillion right there. And so if Bitcoin was 1% of all the assets in the world, um, that's uh, $3 trillion. So that, that's a multiple higher than what Bitcoin is today. Um, it's under a trillion dollars as we're recording this here in okay. May of 2022. And so that, that's pretty helpful. And so, so you can think about, okay, what, you know, uh, nobody wants to hold US dollars, right? Like we're, we're sort of taught, and this is the probably the correct thing to do that you want to hold probably as little of cash balance as possible. And then start to buy like, uh, you know, better assets like stocks and real estate. Um, but if you actually had good money, you could potentially get back to a system where people would, would actually want to hold money more than they do today, or they might want to hold money more than maybe holding something like gold or maybe holding something like negative yielding bonds. And this is, this is what gets me most excited. So like, if you look at the bond market right now, um, U.S. Treasury is uh, 10-year U.S. Treasury bonds around 3%, which is actually much better than what it was just a few months ago. Um, bonds have really, um, you know, really crashed here year to date. But but inflation is 5, 10 plus percent right now. And so if you're holding bonds, you're actually losing money in real terms. And, and that's a big problem. Like throughout the last few decades, usually your safe money was at least able to keep up with inflation. Um, that's not been the case here over the last year. And so if that continues, you might see people start to look at bonds and say, what else can we do with this? And so, you know, if there's $100 trillion in bonds, um, it's a massive market. If Bitcoin could even take a small percentage of that, I mean, even that, that there alone would be a, um, a multiple higher than what Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network is today. And so now you're seeing bond guys actually talk about this. Like a, a guy named Greg Foss talks about Bitcoin is essentially being a place where you could carve out a portion of your bond portfolio. You know, albeit it would have to be a small percentage right now, but you could essentially use that as a store of value in the same way that people use, you know, a bond portfolio as being a store of value. Um, and I think that's a really interesting first use case. And then down the road, you could look at things like, you know, real estate, you could look at things like, uh, you know, people that use the stock market as a savings account, right, where you're putting money in like, a, you know, a dividend stock portfolio, because it's better than a savings account. 
that's probably a lot further down the road or people that use like multiple houses as a savings account, right? Like mm-hmm. you hear about, you know, the Chinese just buying houses because they need their, to put their money somewhere or yeah. like the Russians buying up farmland in Western Kansas because they need a place to store their value. And, and you're not, you're not investing in farmland because you want to be a farmer. You're just using it as a place to park cash. Um, and so here you could see like a good money could start to, um, demonetize some of these other assets. And, um, and so that's what's super interesting. And so, so I mentioned, you know, $1 trillion, $3 trillion. Um, this guy named Michael Saylor, he's the, the, um, the uh, CEO of a company called MicroStrategy. Uh, he's a pretty important person in the space right now. He, he, he has a long-term valuation price of a uh, uh, market cap of $100 trillion for Bitcoin, which would be like hundred uh, X from here. Um, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but you, know, you start to see these sorts of ideas. And so, you know, hundred X, um, that, that'd be a really big deal. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Yeah. What I will say about that is um, you're not going to get rich overnight by owning Bitcoin, right? Whereas like with some of the hope in like some of the altcoins is like, well, you could buy Doge at a penny and then it's going to be $65,000 and you're going to become rich overnight. It's not going to happen with Bitcoin. Like it's not going to go up a thousand X from here. Those days are probably long gone. But, you know, here at this point, like people like to talk about the risk reward of Bitcoin as being super interesting as an investment because it's reached a certain degree of credibility. There's a network around it now where it's probably not going to go to zero. There's so much infrastructure built around Bitcoin. The hodlers are going to buy if 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 it sinks to a certain price at this point. And so the idea that it could be a multi-bagger from here, I think is is certainly possible. And we're sort of past the point where it's likely that it will go to zero. Whereas like a decade ago, it was very possible that Bitcoin could have gone to zero. Um, and I think it's sort of reached this degree of credibility where there is so much infrastructure and there's so many hodlers in the space that are essentially the the buyers of last resort if and when we get the next crash. Yeah. No, and I, I think going going back to that question, is it a currency or an investment? I think it's it's kind of a hybrid of that right now. Right now, it's it's more of an investment because you're not going to use it to purchase things. Because I mean, wasn't it Domino's that was? I don't know. Somebody purchased a pizza or something with Bitcoin a while back. But then your pizza today could be you could have bought five pizzas tomorrow with you know the change in the value of the. So using it as a currency doesn't seem like a good idea right now. Um, so it's more a store of value and quote unquote an investment. Um, but over the long term, it sounds like you're looking for it to eventually stabilize where it gets to more of a currency where it's uh, a medium of exchange. Yeah. I mean, you're reading the Bitcoin standard right now and uh, which is a book, by the way, that I highly recommend. Yeah. Um, and what the Bitcoin standard lays out is that the process of gold becoming money uh, didn't happen overnight. Okay. So, you know, gold was essentially this process over hundreds and even thousands of years of the market, like slowly realizing that like gold is the best money. And, um, and that, that happened over many, many years. And so you can imagine like early on, and the price of gold is probably very volatile, right? Um, as it was becoming essentially monetized. And that's sort of normal. Like you, 
you it, it it would be weird to expect that like Bitcoin would be invented and then like it would just like immediately be this stable currency, but like it's in the process of monetization right now. And so, you know, as it as it grows to like it's sort of, you know, and it, it, it eventually sort of settles in like the amount of market cap that you would expect it to have in the percentage of global assets. Well, that's going to be extremely volatile in the meantime. And so, yeah, the thing to do is you buy it, you hold it, and then you wait to spend it either at the point of like final hyper Bitcoinization where it's sort of settled in like the place it's going to stay, or, you know, you do it in the way that we do it with any sort of savings mechanism. So like, let's say, you want to save for anything in life. Like you want to save for a house, you want to save uh, to help your kid get married. Um, you know, if your Bitcoin appreciates and you're in a place to use it for any of these things, by all means do it. Um, but it would behoove people to try to save it right now while it's in this period of uh, monetization where it's been very volatile. Kind of gets into an, a side note of how it's taxed. Um, it's taxed as property, correct? Right. However, um, there's no wash sale rules on it. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So think about, um, you know, when you buy Bitcoin, you have a cost basis. When you sell it, you pay a capital gain uh, based on the spread or you can write off a loss if you're selling it at a loss. Um, the one unique thing about Bitcoin right now is there is no wash sale rule. So unlike something like a an ETF or a stock, um, where you have to wait 30 days to buy it back. That is one of the little financial planning hacks with Bitcoin right now is you could essentially lower your cost basis. And if you're incurring losses because, you know, Bitcoin's down right now, like 60% from its highs, you could sell it and you could immediately buy it back. And uh, that is one of the little hacks that exist out there right now. I wanted to bring that up. <laughs> I heard, I heard that. So it's, um, yeah, I was just talking with a client the other day about uh, tax loss harvesting. And uh, to your point, you can't buy it back the same day, that same um, similarly identical investment. And the rules are uh, not so clear on that from the IRS because they were made a long time ago in the, in the 30s um, with the Securities Act and all that sort of stuff. And so it was dealing more with stocks, right? And so you couldn't sell Apple today and buy Apple back now to generate the loss, but you could, you know, sell Apple and then purchase Google or something, you know, not identical. But when it, what we're dealing with a lot these days is mutual funds and ETFs. And so that gets into kind of a tricky conversation of um, interpreting the rules. Um, yeah. Anywho, that was a side note. Um, so this sounds complicated. So that's been kind of one of my other things is this just sounds really complicated for mainstream adoption. And so is this just going to be a niche market um, in the future or is this kind of a generational thing where it's kind of like, you know, as we grow up with technology, uh, we, we it's um, kind of we learn through osmosis and it becomes more mainstream. Does that kind of make sense? Uh, I think it's the latter. Yeah. I mean, I think if you think about, uh, nerds talking about the internet in like the seventies and the eighties, it would have been like, for most people would have been like, what are these people talking about? Like, we're going to live in this, you know, metaverse that doesn't make any sense. But now like my grandmother uses the internet 
you know, on a daily basis on her, on her iPad. Um, or even like a more recent example, if you could think of, uh, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, uh, if you would have pitched the idea of like, Hey, here's what you're going to do. You're going to have an app on your phone and you're going to push a button and a rant and a random person on a car is going to come pick you up. And you're going to prefer that over a taxi and it's going to be great. And there's going to be this huge network of this. You would have been like, why would I get in a random person's car? Like, how is this going to happen? That sounds like really strange to me. So I think it's just, you know, you said it um, right now. It's still early stage. The tools aren't quite there yet to make this like super mainstream. My grandmother is not ready to, you know, securely hold Bitcoin in cold storage yet on her own. Um, but it's a lot better than it used to be. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's less like it's really coming around to be, you know, the tools are a lot better than what they used to be. Um, you know, if, if, even if you just saw the headline, uh, Fidelity is going to launch a Bitcoin holding opportunity in 401k plans. Yeah. And so, some of these like things are going to start to be really slick and easy to use. And I just think you're going to see this, you know, it's just like the internet rolling out um, 20 years ago. Now it's going to become a lot easier to use. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I kind of, to your point, maybe not so much Uber, but like the iPhone when that first came out, the idea that we were going to have phones that we could, you know, browse the internet on and touch apps. We could see people like, um, I just upgraded over the weekend to, uh, iPhone 13. Um, by the way, wow. <laughs> I was going not to, bra not to brag. He says, no, 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 no. So here, here's what I'm bragging about. I had the original iPhone SE. <laughs> oh, okay. Everybody gave me shit about it for like the last three years, right? <laughs> Big upgrade. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, so I looked and that came out in March of 2016. So uh, 2016. So I've had that phone for like five, maybe six years. Nice. So I finally decided to make the upgrade. It was running kind of slow. The guy at uh, Trent, the guy at the Apple store, he's like, dude, anything in this lineup is going to be a thousand times better than what you have. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I get it. Let me just say, let me just say one more thing about this though, because, um, I think one of the things financial advisors have a problem with, and I, I totally understand this because this happens all the time with clients where you get like somebody excited about like a particular technology or a movement, like, you know, maybe 10 years ago it was like, uh, oh, um, uh, solar energy or wind energy is the, is the hot thing or like nanotechnology or what was it? two years ago where everyone was excited about like marijuana stocks and like, oh, this yeah. is the new hot thing. And I think a lot of financial advisors and, and like their right to think this way are like, well, that's great. And if eventually, if any of these things really do end up being the next big thing, well, that's going to be reflected in my portfolio anyway, because the, the companies that we own are going to adopt nanotechnology or, you know, marijuana technology, if it really becomes the next big thing. And I don't have to like, invest in everything that I think will be the next big thing. And so I'm certainly like, I totally uh, like understand that idea. I think what's a little different about Bitcoin is that, um, well, A, it's not a stock and it's not like 
just it actually is a protocol in the same way that the internet is a protocol, meaning there's a bunch of things that can, that can be built on top of Bitcoin. In fact, some people say Bitcoin is going to be the foundation of the next financial system. You'll just have a bunch of things built on top of it, like banks and financial institutions and lending programs and all sorts of stuff. But because it's money, or it's at least attempting to be money, some people view it as money right now. Um, it, it, as a financial advisor, like you sort of do have to wrestle with it because like, we're talking with clients about what to do with their money and like this actually is money. And so you could envision a world where, and people are already trying to figure this out. Um, there's a company called Nidig that's like literally rolling out this software for banks right now. Or on your phone, you're going to have your checking account and then you push a button and your Bitcoin savings account is right there inside of your bank app. Um, and so you sort of have to wrestle with this idea if you're helping people with their money that like this thing is pretending to be money or people are saying that it is yeah. and it's potentially becoming really good money. And so I think that's what makes it a little bit different than like just trying to invest in whatever the next hot technology is because we all know how that can go. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so from an advisor perspective, I've heard this from some other advisors, like mm -hmm. the question of, why the hell are we even being wrapped into roped into, you know, this whole Bitcoin conversation? I'm no expert on the Euro or the dinar or right, right. the ruble. And so what if, you know, this is not, but, uh, you know, people are saying in the industry that, you know, part of your fiduciary responsibility, it's like, well, I don't deal with those other things. And so I guess uh, real quick, you know, kind of the thoughts on that. Well, I mean, financial advisors, I feel like we already have been doing this to some extent, maybe not as explicitly, but like financial advisors were always taught, and this is the right thing to say, is that because of inflation, you have to invest. Um, and so, you know, if you look at something like a stock portfolio over time, you know, historically, stocks have usually outperformed inflation, excuse me, by like two to 4% um, over the decades, right? And so, because most financial advisors recommend that their clients buy stocks for the long run, um, we're sort of already tackling that problem of inflation. And the Bitcoin thing attacks the problem even more directly because you're saying, I'm not telling you to ditch uh, US dollars and buy stocks. I'm telling you to ditch US dollars and just buy better money. Um, and so it's sort of like attacking the same problem, except we're more explicit about it because we're actually saying the US dollar is garbage. Here's why it's garbage. It's now more obvious than ever in the last couple of years since COVID. And Bitcoin is a better version of that. And, um, you know, financial advisors have already been doing that over the years by talking about how stocks beat inflation. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so let's, let's get into the security. So I know that's a big thing, uh, being a digital currency and, um, you know, everything is under attack, cyber attacks. Um, I've heard someone say they were told once by, um, you know, there, there's, there's two types of companies out there, companies that know they've been hacked and companies that don't know they've been hacked. And so I, I think, you know, talking about putting your, your, uh, life savings or just your me your money your medium of exchange into this the thought of it not being backed by anything and the possibility of it being hacked or 
whatnot. I mean, talk about that. Okay. Well, there's basically, there's two, there's two concerns here. Um, so the first concern is that the actual member of the ledger is the blockchain, that the actual decentralized ledger W would get hacked and essentially someone could go in there and they could hack the ledger and they could reverse transactions and <coughs> enrich themselves by essentially um you know taking some of these transactions for themselves and and bitcoin without being supported by any company without being supported by any government has literally never been hacked in its entire existence that the ledger has never been compromised that's pretty amazing. It's happened. It's literally just sprung up from the free market. And so like, if you like this idea that um, you don't need government to do everything, and like there are certainly many things that the free market can do better on its own. I mean, this is literally the most free market thing that we probably have right now out there. It just sprung up from this inventor. Um, people have sort of uh, created a community around it and improved upon the network. And um, it's never been hacked. That's pretty insane. Uh, and it uses what's called SHA-256 encryption to essentially secure the ledger to ensure that um, it will never be hacked. And what the miners do is, is actually they protect that encryption by not allowing um, uh, you know, hackers to uh, take 51% of the hash rate and um, essentially reverse transactions. So that's... That's the first part. So like you can be sure that if you if you own a piece of that ledger, if you um, you know have your 6.15 Bitcoin on the blockchain, that no, it's never been hacked and no one has ever essentially successfully stolen any of those uh, pieces of the blockchain. So the real problem, which most people <coughs> are probably more familiar with are like, well, what if like an exchange gets hacked? What if any of these on-ramps get hacked? What if your the Bitcoin that you have in custody is is taken from somebody else? And so here, you know, a lot of people might be familiar with things like the Mt. Gox hack in like 2014, where somebody hacked onto one of these exchanges where people had their Bitcoin with a custodian, <coughs> and that custodian itself itself was probably hacked. And this happens all of the time, um, probably less frequently than it, it used to, but it still happens where these custodians um, do get hacked by hackers and um, people have their coins stolen. And now, now a lot of times nowadays, um, like if, if, if Coinbase were to get hacked for something, I imagine that Coinbase probably would make you whole. Um, they have insurance for things like that. And their security has gotten a lot better than it, it used to be, but it still is a real issue with Bitcoin. There's no FDIC insurance. Mm -hmm. um, there's no government that's going to bail you out if, if that were to happen. And so, and so there's this, this motto in Bitcoin that not your keys, not your coins. And what that means is like a lot of people, once you really go down the rabbit hole, you start to realize that one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is that it actually is a bearer asset, meaning you can hold it you can hold it yourself in the same way that you have gold on your person or the same way that you have cash on your person. Uh, Bitcoin can be a bearer asset too. And so cold storage. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. So you can take your private keys off of the custodian um, and you could secure your Bitcoin uh, by yourself. And so now it's essentially like, you know, Barack Obama's got this great clip um, where he talks about like, 
if you can own Bitcoin outside of the financial system, it's like having a Swiss bank account in your brain. And he's right. Like he was saying okay. it like, like, like that's a, like, like that's a bad thing because yeah, I was going to say, it. he's got to be talking in an unfavorable oh, yeah. way. <laughs> but it was, it was like, it's a sales pitch for Bitcoin because now it's like you, you literally can have this beautiful asset outside of the financial system um, when you're securing it on your own. And so there's a bunch of things you can do when you're talking about how to secure your own Bitcoin, which we can, may or may not want to get into, but, um, but yeah, that's sort of the second piece of the security. Yeah. So I've heard the 51% rule, basically to hack it, you would have to hack 51% of the servers, a coordinated attack on the servers. Who are these servers and where are they? Yeah. So, so essentially this is what the Bitcoin miners are. Um, so, so Bitcoin mining now is a massive industry. Um, I know people that do home mining where they have an ASIC in their basement. ASIC is a one of what one of these machines is called that that performs these transactions. So it's as it's as you know you can do it in your house, or there are now that these massive industrial projects of you know people that use stranded energy in China or Kazakhstan or um, you know rural Iowa where people find stranded uh, energy um, that isn't being used for anything. And there's these huge industrial operations where, um, you know, now there's a bunch of incentives for people to get into Bitcoin mining. Um, there are now oil and gas companies that are getting into Bitcoin mining where they're, they're realizing that when they have a lot of excess capacity, you could do Bitcoin mining as a way to make your excess, uh, excess energy profitable, which is pretty cool. So anyway, these are the people that secure the network. And if you really wanted to attack the Bitcoin ledger, you would have to have 51% of that hash power. You would have to produce 51% um, of energy to be able to attack all of these miners that are securing the network. And so it's probably impossible to do. Some people have speculated that uh, maybe something like quantum computing yeah. could make this happen. Um, but uh, but the incentives are in place that you know these miners all get paid handsomely to make this uh, a profitable business. So it's uh, it's sort of a really cool economic system where, you know, you can, you can make a nice living right now by being a Bitcoin miner and securing the network um, against attackers. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard. The quantum computing. And then it was countered with, you could use quantum computing to combat the, the hackers. But. Exactly. Yeah. So like if, if we got to the place where quantum computing was impossible, was, was possible for this, Surely you would imagine that there would be people in Bitcoin that would recognize that and say, hey, let's figure out how to implement quantum computing into our security protocol. <laughs> it wouldn't like unless an alien dropped down and like had quantum computing um, <laughs> and like surprised everyone like I don't know. Quantum, quantum computing probably wouldn't happen in a vacuum. I don't know. They had the hearings. They had the hearings on UFOs. What was that last week? Oh, really? I didn't see that. Have you ever watched those videos? Uh, no, I mean, no, they've I, been sorry. out the, I think it's the Navy has videos of like these Tic Tac looking just, uh, shapes just doing things that like, we've never seen the technology for. It's cool. So I, I'm not going to get into, do you believe in aliens? But, uh, right. I don't know. Uh, so not backed by the government, not insured for loss. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if we need to get into the whole not backed by a government, but um, 
and feel free to if you want to, but it's you lose it, you're SOL, you're shit out of luck. You know, uh, whether it's you're doing cold storage on a thumb drive and you your thumb drive gets destroyed. I mean, so um, I, I guess couple. So if you lose your password, um, I guess there's the the Stephen Thomas guy, right? You're familiar with who lost his no, password. I think I was reading a, it was a Motley Fool article. He had seventy two hundred bitcoins. And he has this uh, cold storage USB device where it's an iron something or other, and you only get 10 attempts at the password, and he had forgotten the password. Right. Um, yeah, so yeah, like, that's there's, lost, a famous, right? there's a famous heir to uh, BNY Mellon, the bank, oh, who yeah. lost something like you know $100 million plus in Bitcoin. Um, so I think as financial planners, like, this is a really important sort of uh, opportunity for us to help our clients figure out how to securely store their Bitcoin um, and uh, and do estate planning correctly. Um, and so, so how do you yeah, do that? So, well, okay. So, so, so for starters, let me just say that like the the custodians like Coinbase have gotten better, and so so the risk with Coinbase. Um, might be not so much like your money's going to be disappear, but maybe like the risk could be like you might not be able to withdraw your coins when you need it. Um, or it could be like if you want to leave the country or if you become um, cancelable for some reason, if you become a Canadian trucker, maybe you access, access to your money would be compromised in these sorts of things, even if like the custodians have gotten a lot better than what they used to be. And so so I view this as really an opportunity. And of course, you just you need to get you need to get outside of the frame of mind of like essentially using the financial system as like the place that holds all of your money. And you have to just really learn how to do it. You have to learn, you have to educate yourself, you have to learn the tools. Um, and there's a bunch of ways to do it. And I would say, let me just give you this sort of insight. Um the current setup that I'm recommending, which could change because this stuff is changing all this all the time, is a setup called multi-sig collaborative custody. Okay. And essentially what, what we what we use is we use a service called Unchained Capital out of Austin, Texas. And they're actually providing like a handheld way to do cold storage um, with some help. Okay. And so essentially what you do is you've got two private keys, like on a hardware wallet, and then Unchained Capital will hold one. And so essentially, like if you lose one of your keys, if you if one of your hardware wallets gets compromised, well, you still have a second Harry Potter Horcrux somewhere. And then Unchained Capital is uh, essentially your backup plan that will help you restore a wallet in case one of, any one of these things gets compromised. Um, so there are advantages to doing that way in that if you screw up um, one of your keys, you get some help there. There are disadvantages and there are critiques of that setup too that we don't need to get into, but that's the current setup that we use for clients. And I find that it's sort of a good way to uh, take the leap to try multi-signature, which is sort of like the best security protocol that's out there right now with a little bit of help. Yeah. I think that's what I was talking to Ryan, my insurance agent about this, uh, you know. Him. Oh, Gerstner. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, he's. 
Yeah, he's big into it too. So uh, yeah. we're talking about this. I think that's what he was. He he does. Um, oh, cool. But I, so I don't think there's a perfect solution, right? Uh, there's what you view as the best solution, but so well, it's all trade offs, right? Hot, there's exactly. All... So yeah. hot storage. There's the potential to being compromised, right? Getting getting hacked or yeah. Um, so or you, really, you could think about you could think about hot storage as being like you have um, you have a, a a wallet on your phone that it's hooked up to the internet. And so, so what cold storage me- means is that you're literally taking your private keys out of a device that's connected to the internet. And so that's where I think about it as like gold in your safe. Like it's literally not connected to the internet at all. Like a thumb drive. Um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you want to know what a hardware wallet is, it sort of is like a thumb drive. So, so there's what really intrigued me about Bitcoin um, more, most recently the whole Canadian truckers thing like that just kind of right. blew my mind that um, you could like we're mad at these guys for doing what they're doing so we're just going to suspend um, their financial <laughs> financial accounts um, uh, just blew my mind and so I think it makes a really good case for something like Bitcoin um, but being on an exchange like Coinbase then you're still susceptible to that sort of government hand um, regulation. But then from the cold storage standpoint where it's just, you've got to remember your password, um, right? Maybe I'm making this too simple, but being able to remember your password, you know, somebody forgets their password or you start to have cognitive deterioration, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, um, you know, probably not an issue right now because this is more of a generational thing and the older generations, mm-hmm. not. but later on down the years, as this becomes, you know, more mainstream adoption, as we age and we start dealing with those sorts of things, memory loss, uh, I don't know. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And think about, um, I mean, this is exactly why I have, uh, turned the focus of my RIA towards, uh, Bitcoin, because I think this is going to be a huge problem. Um, how how many how many degenerate crypto traders are out there right now that haven't told their wife that they have crypto on their phone or they have a Coinbase account, uh, and they're just going to die, and their wife's going to be like, "I think he was doing it, but I don't know where the money yeah. is, and it's just gone forever." Like uh, that's that's who that's who we're talking about right now. Yeah. So I think I think it's a huge problem, and I think. Uh, you need to know what you're doing. You need to do your homework. Uh, you need to find good advice if, if you don't want to do it yourself. And um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big issue. It's an opportunity, but it also creates new problems. Um, and so that's sort of why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sudden death or hospitalization. So let me tell you, let me tell you a, a quick story. So I've got a Bitcoin um, study group, which some of the XY guys, you might even know some of these guys. Um, and one of the, I won't say his name, but one of the advisors in the group told me that um, he, he met a guy who on this guy, this, this individual's brother uh, on his deathbed said, Hey, at mom, at mom and dad's house in the closet, on the shelf, in the jeans pocket, there's a piece of paper and on that piece of paper is the treasure map that tells you where all my Bitcoin is. 
And he had like 25 Bitcoin or something like that. Oh my gosh. Um, and actually, might, I think it was like 125. It was, it was a sizable fortune. Yeah. And this guy was like a 31-year-old 30, Bitcoiner. And so this advisor in my study group literally for like three days carved out time to sit with this individual and help him recover all of the private keys. So like, hey, here's where the hardware wallets are. Here's where the passwords are. Let's try different combinations to figure out how it worked. And uh, by the end, it was a challenge. And, and like, they were sort of worried it wasn't going to work. But by the end of it, they had recovered millions of dollars in Bitcoins. Holy um, cow. And uh, so that was sort of interesting. And, uh, you know, obviously this client was, you know, internally grateful that he helped him do that. Um, and so I think that's going to be a big issue here over the years if Bitcoin does what it, it could potentially, we think it could potentially do. Interesting. Interesting. It's uh, treasure hunts. That's the new thing with Bitcoin. Totally. I'm yeah. But that's old. Cool. Did you ever watch City Slickers? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Love City Slickers. Right, yeah. Great exactly. Movie. Great movie. So awesome. So last question, and then uh, maybe just share how we could invest in Bitcoin. Not saying that's what we should do at this point. I think uh, disclaimer, you know, don't invest in anything you don't understand. Um, it's kind right. of my general disclaimer folks, but, um, there's the criticism of, uh, uh, energy consumption from it. I'm not too concerned about the whole environment aspect of it, but, um, you need electricity to make it work. Right. Um, so I don't know, just, th these are more kind of, um, uh, kind of harebrained ideas, but kind of the whole, you know, green revolution and transferring to renewables and not reliables, um, you know, suffer, you know, looking at, you know, California with their rolling blackouts and um, whatnot. If you don't have electricity, how does it work? How do you make it work? And uh, right. a reliable source. And it takes a lot of energy to be able to mine for Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know. Just... Yeah. Okay. So this is probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of Bitcoin. And if people really looked into it, they would, they would, they would realize how important Bitcoin is uh, for en the energy markets right now. Uh, because for the first time in essentially history, you can, um, now you can essentially have a reason to create energy sources in areas where people don't live. Uh, because you can have these Bitcoin mining operations literally anywhere. And that's pretty cool. And so, uh, you know, right now, if you, if you don't have access to a cheap energy source, um, you know, it's got to be something like under six kilowatts an hour or something like that to, to have a profitable Bitcoin mining operation. There's no profit in doing it. And so, like, for example, like if you're living in midtown Manhattan and you're paying like, you know, an arm and a leg for your energy right now, well, there's no incentive to start a Bitcoin mining operation in Midtown Manhattan because you don't have access to cheap energy there. Okay. So that's the first problem. So when people say that like, you know, well, Bitcoin is causing the grid to shut down because it's too much energy. Well, that's not the case because nobody would have a Bitcoin mining operation in, in these areas where energy costs is expensive. Yeah. So what is actually happening? What's actually happening is uh, Bitcoin mining operations have been set up in areas of China where you build these ghost towns and you have like a, you know, a hydroelectric plant and nobody lives there. And so you have this plant that's doing nothing. And so they set up a Bitcoin mining operation because you don't need people to live in a place to run these, these plants. Um, I've got a buddy from high school who 
lives in my hometown in Iowa. He makes a high six figure income right now doing Bitcoin mining because in Iowa, we built out all this stupid, uh, you know, like solar and wind yeah. infrastructure that we, that we didn't need. And now there's a bunch of cheap energy that they don't know what to do with in Iowa. Well, my buddy can do Bitcoin mining and he makes a very nice living doing that. And so nice. that's a beautiful thing. So now when you have this excess capacity, you, you can do Bitcoin mining and it gives a, it gives a reason for this play, this stuff to exist. And if, if you have a, uh, you know, if it's the winter time or something like that, and for whatever reason, the price of energy goes up because we're using more like in Texas, like when they had the, the Texas ice storms, well, all the miners just turn off then because of, because when the when the price of energy goes up, they don't have any incentive to keep the machines on, so they turn off their machines for that period of time until the cost goes back down. And so it's a really misunderstood uh, part of this thing, and, and it actually makes the energy markets a lot more efficient and, and a lot more incentivized to find new areas of cheap energy costs. Interesting. So I take it your buddy doesn't work at night. What do you mean? Solar panels. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't know exactly how he does it, but uh, sorry. But yeah, it, it always drives me nuts when I hear like people talking about Iowa as being like the green energy state. Because to me, it just seems like such such a waste. Like they're building this infrastructure that we don't need. It's like a rural a rural state. On the amount of land that you need to be able to do wind farms and solar. Yeah, I, I think I think it's I think it's malinvestment. But but these uh, if you're smart, you could do what my buddy does and try to find this cheap energy that's being sort of artificially propped up. Yeah, man. Let's go find some nuclear and just uh, hook up in the back. This has been uh, fascinating just, you know, having this conversation um, again, not like going for an I gotcha, just some legitimate questions I have, you know, and I think a lot of people I talk to have. But so I guess thoughts on how you should buy Bitcoin if, if you're interested in doing that. I know there's there's few ETFs out there, but my understanding is they're not actual actually investing in Bitcoin. They're um, uh, investing in futures contracts for Bitcoin. So not an actual claim to the Bitcoin. Um, it, it's to me, just my personal, uh, based on the little that I know, it sounds like investing directly into Bitcoin and holding the coins in cold storage makes the most sense. Because there's you know less chance of any sort of um, government over not oversight, but aren't on an exchange or custody somewhere, they can't do anything about what you have. I guess um, I think that's the intriguing part about it is the kind of the libertarian aspect. Right, right, yeah, and this is an ever changing thing. So um, you know this this advice might change, but right now um, I, I do steer people away from Coinbase because, uh, you know, Coinbase is sort of like a casino where, you know, like the, uh, you know, you get confetti popping if you like buy a shit coin or something like that. Shit coin. Um, <laughs> coin. Yeah. So like right, right now the two best exchanges that are like not nudging people into like do doing foolish things, um, are, uh, if it's just a little bit of money, there's a tool called strike, which is really cool. It's an app on your phone. Um, and it's free, so you could literally just buy Bitcoin for free, um, and so that's probably the best low cost solution. There are lim, yeah, Strike the Strike app. Um, that's probably the best tool out there. Um, when you hear people say like you can't use Bitcoin in your day to day transactions, Strike is actually trying to solve that problem. Where in the future they're going to partner with uh, kiosks um, 
in stores where now you can literally pay for stuff with your phone by using the strike app that's going to be rolled out here this year. Um, so that's strike. The other good one is if you don't want to use your, your phone, but you just want to open an account online is a service called Swan Bitcoin, Swan, Bitcoin. Uh, Swan S-W-A-N. And that's another sort of no nonsense um, service. And what, what's unique about Swan is they don't let you sell within the app. So it's literally just buying Bitcoin and storing it um, and they don't let you sell. So it's uh, sort of intended for the hodler, the, the person that's literally just buying and holding. So, so that sounds like hot storage, I guess. How does that compare to like cold storage? Totally. Yeah. So, so none of that helps you go to do cold storage. Yeah. Um, if you want to do cold storage, you would have to um, set up the infrastructure and withdraw your Bitcoin from the exchange. And there are like, if you go to Swan Bitcoin's website, they're going to have guides that are going to tell you how to do that because okay. they encourage that. Um, but that's just probably too much to get into on this call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so if you're wanting to save in like your Roth IRA or something, I've heard Alto Crypto. Is that, are you familiar with them? What? Yeah, I'm going to be rolling out a product for my clients on this. Um, but yeah, I mean, as it stands today, like, you know, you mentioned the ETFs, there's uh, there's GBTC, which is like the over the counter trust that you could do in your Roth IRA. And there's, and so that's sort of like not the best solution. If you, if you want to own actual Bitcoin, um, there are products out there, Alto, Alto Crypto IRA, but actually Unchained Capital, which I just mentioned, is my recommendation to clients. Like if they're willing to do self-custody, okay. um, you could actually do a Roth IRA with Unchained Capital. So um, self-custody, meaning you store it yourself, you hold cold storage. Cold storage. Yeah, storage exactly. Yeah. UBS driver. Your yep. So you could actually have a Roth IRA where you hold the keys. Um in cold storage. So that's pretty cool. Interesting. It costs a little bit of money. I think it's like a thousand bucks to set up. Oh, so crap. you wouldn't do it if it was like, you know, not a little bit of money that you had to, do, to use it with, but, um, but it is a pretty cool product. Okay. Because there's thing in the news recently about maybe it was last week, uh, Coinbase and uh, them saying something about if they were to file bankruptcy that, um, potentially individuals, Bitcoins would be part of that bankruptcy. Is that, uh, maybe I'm interpreting that incorrectly. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that was the legalese that was in their, uh, in their, their legal documents. And so, yeah, that's, I mean, that sort of gets to this whole problem that we've talked about earlier, where there are problems with, you know, having coins on these exchanges where, you know, not your keys, not your coins. Um, and uh, if you really want to be a true Bitcoiner, at some point, you probably want to take self-custody. Yeah. Very cool. Well, hey, we could go on all day about this. Um, I appreciate you hopping on with me and kind of shed some light on some questions folks have. And maybe we can do a future episode on getting into bit into Bitcoin. How to? How to yeah, man, this has been fun. Uh, I'm impressed by the work you've done too. Uh, this is very thorough. So, no. um, so yeah, it's been a journey for me and uh, yeah, definitely open to continuing the conversation. Well, this, this was a highly demanded podcast episode. So uh, I'm nice. sure this is going to be probably one of the most downloaded. So looking forward to it and uh, good to see you. Glad to have you on. We'll have to do it again. All right. Thanks, brother. All right. You take Great it easy. You. I'll save you a Come on now. Swing on. You got nowhere to be if you don't come through, but
I hope you enjoyed the show. That was a fun conversation with my buddy Andy, and I'm sure we all have more questions. I know I do. I included a lot of links to different resources about Bitcoin in the show notes, so you can check that out to learn more. Also, give Andy a follow on Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever you hang out on social to get more insights into Bitcoin. His info is in the show notes. And if you'd like more information about me or Hilltop Financial Planning, and let's be honest, who wouldn't? You can visit hilltopfp.com. Be sure to hit the subscribe button or follow on Apple Podcasts uh, so you get all the new episodes when they drop. Also, if you could do me a favor and leave the podcast a review, that would be appreciated. Remember what Stubergear says, five stars is the appropriate number of stars. You can always find personal finance from the Hilltop wherever podcasts are found. At Hilltop, the doors are open and we continue to bring on new clients. So if you or someone you know are interested in discussing how I can help you find financial freedom, go to our website and click on Schedule Call in the upper right-hand corner. I offer a free 30-minute introductory call. No sales pitch, just an opportunity to get acquainted, chat, find out what you're looking for, and how I can help. Now lastly, the dreadful, scary disclaimer that my compliance told me to read. Everything on this podcast is my opinion or my guest's opinion and is not meant to be taken as investment advice because I'm not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as a fiduciary. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Hilltop Financial Planning LLC is a state-registered investment advisor in the state of Missouri, but serves clients nationwide where exempt from registration. Another episode of Personal Finance from the Hilltop in the books. Signing off from the Hilltop. I'm Kyle Hill.